to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 1, as we follow along with today's lesson. There was a certain man, now this is in contrast to Barnabas and others, there was a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, and they sold a possession. Now, Ananias and Sapphira were probably the kind of couple that every pastor is looking for. Uh, Well-dressed, probably had that Amway type of a handshake, you know, just uh, <laughs> aggressive kind of people. And if they would come into the church, the pastor think, nah, that's a nice looking couple. I'd like to see them become a part of the fellowship here, you know. And they sold their possession and kept back part of the price. That is Ananias, and his wife was privy to it and they brought just a certain part and laid it at the apostles feet but Peter said Ananias why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back a part of the price of the land now notice what Peter says here it's important while it remained Was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your power, your own power? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. So that it's important to note that he wasn't required to sell his land. It wasn't a requirement in the early church. It wasn't something that you had to do. And if you sold your land, it was not required to bring everything in. That was not the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, not bringing everything. The sin was hypocrisy, pretending to bring everything and yet holding back for themselves. That wanting the applause and wanting the plaudits by the sham of we're giving everything to God when really they were holding back from God. Sometimes we hear people say, oh, we would love to have the power of the early church. I would concur with that. 
But it's important to realize that that kind of power is costly. If we had the power of the early church and we would stand and sing, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee, I wonder how many would still be standing after the third verse (laughs) where we say, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. There would probably be a lot of people slain in the spirit (laughs) or by the spirit after that verse. Hypocrisy. A horrible evil that has plagued the church through the years pretending to be something you're not and God dealt very severely with hypocrisy here in the birth of the church here they were making a pretense of giving everything and yet holding back and obviously by agreement between themselves so The result was Peter exercising the gift of word of knowledge, perhaps discernment, called him. And he challenged him why he would do this thing of pretending to give everything to God when he was actually holding something back. Notice, Peter said, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. And then later he said, you've not lied to man, but to God. So that lying to the Holy Spirit was equivalent to lying to God, which indicates that the Holy Spirit is God, one of the three persons of the divine trinity. So Ananias, when he heard these words, fell down and he gave up the ghost or the spirit and a great fear came upon all of them that heard these things. I can imagine you quickly examine your own heart at that point. Now, interesting, here describing his death, he gave up the spirit. This is one definition Biblical definition for death. Giving up the spirit. When the consciousness is departs from the body or is separated from the body, it was called death. It is interesting that even today that is a medical definition for death. When there is the separation of the consciousness from the body, when you are no longer, your brain is no longer functioning. So when a person is in a coma and they connect to the person, the life support systems, they connect the EEG probes and they watch the little graph as the needle bounces, indicating that The brain is still functioning, though the person may be in a coma and is only breathing through the artificial uh, 
methods. And they keep the person on the life support system until the line goes flat. And once the line has gone flat on the EEG graph, then they disconnect the life support systems and they inform the family that their loved one is no longer with us. Uh, it's, uh, it's a, they are clinically dead because the brain is no longer functioning. The Bible also has, however, a second definition for death. And that is the separation of your consciousness from God. If you're living without any consciousness of God, no thought of God, then the Bible declares that you are dead. Paul said, if a person is living purely for pleasure... They are dead while they're still alive. So you can be having all of the body functions, breathing, thinking, singing, the whole bit. But if your conscience is separated from God, no thought of God, no place for God in your life, then you're dead as far as God is concerned and as far as the Bible is concerned from a spiritual death. And spiritual death is really worse than physical death. And much more to be feared than physical death. Don't fear those who can kill your body and after that have no power. But fear him who after the body is killed is able to uh, cast you into hell. Yea, I say, fear ye him, Jesus said. And it speaks of those who will be cast into the lake burning with fire. It says, this is the second death. So, uh, you hath he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. The wages of sin is death. Separation from God. God's hand is not short that he cannot save. Neither is his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But your sins have separated you from God. God said to Adam, in the day that you eat, you will surely die. It was that spiritual death, that separation from the consciousness of God's presence that he experienced when he disobeyed the command of God. So he gave up the ghost. There was that physical death. And the young men arose and wound him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, uh, they didn't have, uh, they didn't practice embalming in Israel and they buried people the day they died. And this practice is even current in the present time. They bury the person the day they die. Uh, they don't have embalming services and so forth and wakes or whatever they just when a person dies they bury them the same day so interesting here actually they didn't try to find the family notify the family or whatever they just guy died take him out and bury him <laughs> so it was about three hours later when Sapphira the wife came in not knowing what was done didn't know that her husband had died. 
And Peter asked her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, that's how much. Then Peter said unto her, how is it that you've agreed together to tempt the Lord, the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them that have buried your husband are at the door and they're going to carry you out. She fell over dead. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, at least buried her by her husband. And <laughs> it doesn't really need to tell you, does it? Great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. I mean, that really sobered everybody up. Now, this was the purity and this is the resultant power. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. So the church was sort of meeting in the temple precincts. Uh, they were having services there in Solomon's porch. It was a large public area and so uh, they would gather there on Solomon, in Solomon's porch. But of the rest of the people, dared no man to join himself to them, but the people magnified. I mean, after that, the people said, well, that's pretty nice, but, uh, you know, I don't want to join that church. Uh, so uh, it was sort of the end of the communal kind of people selling and, and, and bringing in the money. Uh, they were still, though, distributing the money uh, that had already been brought in. But other problems developed, as we will find as we read chapter 6 next week. Uh, this was really a problem. Uh, that's why I question whether or not it was really directed by the Spirit or just by zealous people who were so excited over what the Lord was doing, uh, they, they were ready to, to respond that way. A lot of times when, when God has touched a person's life, uh, God has healed a loved one or, or God has, uh, has really worked in a family, people are touched and because of that they, they want to respond to God. I, I had a fellow whose son uh, was uh, heavy into drugs and just really uh, out to lunch, uh, so to speak. Uh, he came and he accepted the Lord and his life was transformed. In fact, today he is a Calvary Chapel pastor. But his life was transformed. His father was very wealthy. He called for an appointment. He came in. Uh, he took out his checkbook and said, uh, how much do you want? I said, nothing. He, he said, well, how much do you need? I said, well, nothing. He said, well, I want to give something to the church. How much do you want? And I said, look, you pray and ask God. Don't ask me. Uh, we don't need anything. And if God lays on your heart to give, but, you know, I, I'm not going to tell you any amount. But, but people get excited when God has worked. And, and he saw the transformation in his son. And he was so thrilled over that. He, he wanted to 
show his uh, appreciation in a tangible way. And, and that's what happened in the early church. People wanting to show their appreciation for what God was doing in a tangible way. But it wasn't really something that was required or directed by God. It was just a one of those movement kind of things. But because it wasn't directed by God, it really didn't work out well. Uh, ultimately, uh, Paul had to take up offerings uh, for the poor brethren in Jerusalem. I mean, it, it turned out to be a financial disaster in the long run. But in the early church, there was power. The believers were more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. I mean, this thing was like a wildfire. It was really growing. There was a lot of excitement, multitudes, both men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. So it, this is quite interesting. Uh, they, would, they, they were coming from all over, bringing their sick. And as Peter would walk down the street, they would try and position them so that when he walked by, his shadow would fall on them. I believe that there is a principle of faith that needs many times to be activated. I think that, I know that we all have faith, but so often our faith is quite passive rather than active. And the difference between passive and active faith is passive faith says, well, I believe God can do it. And, and I believe that God might do it someday. Active faith says, I believe that God is going to do it now. But many times we need something to more or less trigger our faith, so to speak. So that the Lord commanded to lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Not that there is any healing virtue by laying your hands on the person or any transference of healing power. I've got the healing hand, you know. But as you anoint with oil, as you lay hands on them, it gives them a point of releasing their faith so that as the hands are laid on them, they think, now, Lord, yes. And it's, it, it's a thing of activating the faith to receive now the promise of God. It's no longer God is going to do it someday. God's going to do it now as they lay hands on me. With Paul, uh, we'll get it a little later on. When he was there in Ephesus, he was working as a tent maker. And they would take his sweatbands. Paul would get off work and take off his sweatband and lay it down. Someone would rip it off. <laughs> and, and they would take the sweatbands of Paul and lay them on the sick. And, and they were healed. 
Here, Peter, as his shadow, and, and the people as they were sitting there watching Peter come up the street, looking at where the sun was and making sure that, you know, when he walks past here, his shadow is going to fall on me. Uh, as his shadow fell on them, I believe that it was a, 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 a point of contact where they released their faith. Just like the woman, you remember, who, when Jesus was on his way to the house of Jairus, whose daughter had died, and the woman grabbed hold of the hem of his garment, and Jesus said, who touched me? And Peter said, Lord, are you kidding? I mean, people are shoving and pushing all around. What do you mean, who touched you? I mean, everybody's shoving. And the Lord said, no, I perceive that virtue has gone out. And the woman trembling came and kneeled and she confessed uh, this 12 years hemorrhaging. And she said, I, I, I knew if I could just but touch the hem of your garment, I would be whole. And Jesus said, woman, go in peace. Your faith has made you whole. Because the moment she touched, the, the hemorrhaging stopped. But it was having set a point of contact to release the faith. I know the moment I touch him, you know. And the faith was activated. And the faith being activated, she was healed. Now, she could have set many different things. She could have set in her mind, the moment he looks at me, the moment I can catch his eye, I know I'll be healed. And she could have been walking around, you know, trying to catch the eye of Jesus, you know. She could have said many different things, but it was the idea of a point where faith was to be released. And, and this shadow of Peter, it, it created that point where faith was released. The moment his shadow failed, it, ah, yes. So, not that there was something spiritual or or all about Peter's shadow. It was just a matter of faith. And I think that that's true today. And in many cases, uh, people's faith is, is built up by these faith healers. Uh, to believe that the moment, you know, brother healer lays his hands on me and they, they build this up. Now, I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm just saying that faith does work. It brings salvation. By faith are you saved. Through, or by grace are you saved through faith. It brings healing. The prayer of faith shall save the sick. The Lord shall raise them up. When we were living in Tucson in the very early years of our ministry, we were in our early 20s. We moved into this subdivision, and next door there lived a captain in the Air Force with his wife, Jan, very personable couple. And um, our driveways joined each, they were side by side, and of course, according to the sociological studies, if 
your driveway is side by side with your neighbor, you're going to get acquainted with him. And uh, it's interesting. They, they've had sociological studies on you know where you live and where your driveway is and all. They can tell you which neighbors you're going to be friendly with and which ones you, know, you, you won't really know too well. It all depends on where your driveway is. Um, but uh, we did get acquainted whether or not it was driveways, but we did get acquainted. And um, Jim had been a professor at Cornell and he was in the reserves and had been called to active duty. Uh, They had three beautiful little blonde daughters and we had three children at the time. So, you know, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor, you know. Oh, you know, and all of the questions that go with it. And uh, so one evening, Chuck Jr. uh, was uh, not well. Uh, He was having blood in his stool. And so Jan was... I went off to church. It was a Sunday evening. I went off to church. Case stayed home uh, with the children. And Jan came over and said, oh, you need to call a doctor. And Case said, no, we've prayed for him and all. And, oh, but, you know, that's, and, you know, pushing. And Case said, no, we, we believe that the Lord can heal him. And so we just uh, trust the Lord. And uh, the next morning, Chuck was out and playing with the kids. And she was amazed that, you know, he was well and fine and all. And so she called me over and she said, you know, tell me more. And so we shared with her and she accepted the Lord. She said, well, I'm, I'm, I want to give my life to Jesus. So she accepted the Lord. Well, her husband was an agnostic. And uh, so she wanted to wait for the right timing to share with him the fact that she had received Christ. I mean, it was sort of, you know, she just wanted to wait until the move was right and so forth. And when her husband, Jim, came home from the airbase that evening, the daughters came in and they were jumping around. Mama, going to tell daddy what happened when Chuck came over this afternoon, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And so Jim said to her, what in the hell goes on when I'm not home, you know? So she had to share with him. And so Jim started talking with us, and we gave him a book that you might believe by Henry Morris that had just been published. And the result of it was Jim started reading it, couldn't put it down, called me up the next morning, and he said, I finished the book at 2 o'clock, and he said, I know you'll be interested. I was on my knees when I finished Jim accepted the Lord. I got the most beautiful letter from me. He was transferred up to Alaska. And he said, Chuck, he said, you don't know what receiving Jesus Christ has meant to me. I used to say that children were the scourge of the earth. I hated my own little daughters. And he says, but I can't wait for them to come on up. He said, I just miss them so dreadfully. And he said, oh, Christ has just changed my life so completely. It was just beautiful to see what God had done. But Jan, most people in Tucson in those days 
you only live there. You know, they really didn't have air conditioning perfected. You'd only live in Tucson because you had to because of your health. I mean, you have asthma or something, and, and most people had asthma who were living in Tucson. Uh, and so uh, Jan, very outgoing kind of a person, the lady over the back fence, Jan would talk to her all the time, and the lady had asthma and, you know, get out her little atomizer and so forth. And so Jan says, look, you don't have to do that. This, this guy next door here, he's, he's a preacher and he prays for people. They, they, and people are healed and, and you don't have to have that anymore. Uh, you know, come on over to the house, I'll call him over and, and he'll pray for you. So Jan called me up and said, Chuck, you know, told me the story. So I went over and I prayed for her and God healed her. And so Jan started bringing all the asthmatic neighbors in. (laughs) And God was healing them. She called me up and she said, Chuck, I just got a call from my girlfriend. She's on the way to the hospital to have an operation. I told her, don't go to the hospital. Come to my house. (laughs) And let my neighbor pray for you. And so the gal came by. And Jan called me over, and we went over and prayed, and the Lord healed her. She went, and the doctors looked, gave another example. They said, well, you're all right. You don't need the operation. Well, it, I mean, it was exciting, because I had never seen anything like this before. And I'm certain it wasn't my faith. I'm certain it was Jan's faith. I mean, she had seen the work of God, and, and it just had that tremendous faith that if Chuck just prays for you, you're going to be healed. And, and she would build the people up, you know, tell them all the neighbors been healed of asthma. And, and uh, it, it was exciting because uh, God was honoring the faith of this woman. And, and people were trying to give me the credit, but I knew that it, it wasn't my faith. I knew that, you know, God had just really given Jan tremendous faith. So here was this anticipation, this expectation, the releasing of faith as the shadow of Peter would fall on the people. So there came also a multitude out of all of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing their sick folks and those that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. I mean, This is powerful stuff that's going on. So then the high priest rose up and all of those that were with him who are the sect of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the materialists. They did not believe in spirits, angels, or resurrection. They were purely materialists. And they were filled with indignation in King James, actually jealousy. When when they saw all of the people that were uh, receiving the Lord and all, they were jealous, angry too. And so they laid hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go 
stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. How's interesting um, how that the angels assisted in jailbreaks. <laughs> this happened to Peter on another occasion. We'll find it a little further on in Acts when Herod stretched forth his hand against the church and killed James, the brother of John. When he saw it please the Jews, he imprisoned Peter, intending to bring him forth and to kill him also. And how that uh, in the night the angel of the Lord came to Peter and said, fashion your sandals on, you're getting out of here, and let him, the gates opened of their own accord and led Peter out. And uh, then Paul, the Lord worked a little differently because God isn't bound to one particular pattern. With Paul, he shook the prison and shook the walls down and uh, led to the uh, conversion of the Philippian jailer. Uh, I have a very interesting story uh, on on, on this subject. My father was a tremendous uh, witness for Jesus Christ. He was a sales engineer for the Southern County's Gas Company when we lived in Ventura. Uh, Later got into real estate, but uh, my dad uh, was sort of considered the chaplain of the Ventura County Jail because he'd go up every Sunday and have services for the prisoners there. And one Sunday, my dad was teaching about how God got Peter out of jail, you know. And uh, (laughs) So... uh, the following Sunday morning, uh, when we pulled up to church, here was a guy dressed quite smartly, and he came up to the car and opened the door for the family, and we all looked at this guy. We'd never seen him before. And uh, he said, you're Mr. Smith? And he says, yeah. My dad said, yeah. He said, you, you go up to the jail? Yeah. And he says, I came to church this morning. So I uh, want to go to church with you. So my dad was also had the gift of hospitality, and so he invited him home uh, after church for dinner, and the guy began to tell his stories, and they were pretty exciting stories for little kids, robbing banks and all this kind of stuff, and jailbreaks uh, out of some of the major prisons, and uh, we were sitting there wide-eyed listening to the stories of this man. And um, so dad fixed him a room in the garage and the fellow lived with us for a while and uh, then he went on up to San Jose where uh, anyhow after he left my dad went to the because he, he had escaped uh, so many different jails in so many states that dad went to the sheriff and he said uh, I'm curious about this fellow Jimmy Reynolds why, why is it that you released him And uh, he said, oh, Mr. Smith, that was a mistake. He said, um, the trustees who type up the cards, he said, um, we, on the upper right-hand side, when we have a prisoner that we need to hold, we we type hold up there. Well, this trustee thought that it didn't look neat up there. He he typed it further down as we were going through the cards. Uh, We didn't noticed that there was a hole down lower and we didn't see it in the corner, so released him. But Jimmy told my dad, he said, you know, I was sitting in the back of the prison when you were there last Sunday. He said, I didn't come out. But I heard you talking. And so he said, after you left, he said, 
I was listening. And, and he said, I, I said to this fellow, the cellmate, he said, do you hear what that guy said? He said that Jesus got these guys out of jail. <laughs> he said, now I, I've done a lot of prison breaks. But he said, this is a new one. <laughs> he said, let's make a deal. Let's ask God to get us out of here. And if God gets us out of here, we'll go to church down at that guy's church next Sunday. And the other fellow, name was Hearst, he was a town drunk, and uh, the judge decided to throw the book at him, but Wednesday the judge uh, came in, and I mean the judge relented, and so they came in Wednesday and told Hearst that the judge had commuted his sentence and he was free. And then it was Sunday morning when they had roll calls, said, Jimmy Reynolds, and yep, said, you know, report to the office and you're a free man. And, and it was this mistake, but it was one of those things. I mean, God has different ways. As I told you, you know, with Paul, he shook the prison down. And with Peter, they just, they just let him out. Uh, so the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth. Then he said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all of the words of this life. Oh, this is a glorious life, the life in Christ, unequaled. Share with the people all of the words of this life. And so when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and they taught. But the high priest came and they that were with him and they called the council together and the senate and they sent to the prison to have the prisoners brought. But when the officers came, they found them not in the prison, and they returned and they said, the prison was still locked up with all safety. The guards were standing outside the doors, but when we opened the doors, there was no one in there. Now, when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered just how far this would go, you know. How many are going to hear about this one? So they came. Someone came and said, Behold, the men that you put in prison are in the temple and they're teaching the people. So they sent the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, because they feared the people, lest they would be stoned. And when they had brought them and set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did I not strictly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Notice the things that he said. First of all, you filled Jerusalem with this man's doctrine. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea. They have now witnessed in Jerusalem and according to the testimony of the high priest, they filled the city with the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a tremendous accusation? Don't you wish we could be charged with that? It'll be brought before the judge and what's the charge? Well, you've filled the city of 
Santa Ana, or you fill Orange County with the doctrine of Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right, you know. <laughs> but then the second thing is interesting. You intend to bring this man's blood on us. Back in Matthew 26, we're told that when Pilate uh, was being pressured by the Jews to uh, a judgment that he knew was not fair, his Roman sense of justice was being violated because he knew that Jesus was innocent. And so he finally ordered a basin to be brought and publicly, ceremonially, he washed his hands and he said, look, I'm washing my hands of this case. I'm innocent of this man's blood. I want you to see to that. And they cried out, his blood be upon us and our children. Now they're upset because the apostles are declaring that they were responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And so you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Well, they said that. They said, his blood be upon us and our children. Peter's not going to back down. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we must, the word ought there is actually must, we must obey God rather than man. There's no choice. We must. And the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, who you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand. Peter told him that earlier. In the last chapter, the first arrest and arraignment. But Jesus said to his disciples, you're going to be brought before the judges and before the magistrates. Don't take any forethought what you're going to say. You'll be brought before kings and all. Don't take any forethought. In that hour, the Holy Spirit will give you the words and it will turn to you for a testimony or it will give you an opportunity to testify. So every time they were brought before a judge, man, they'd just give a testimony. And they'd preach the gospel to them. Uh, look at Paul, how he, he did that too when he was in court. Every time, man, he'd just tell the story of his own conversion and what God had done, you know, for him, transforming, turning him around, you know. And so they use it as an opportunity to share the gospel. As Jesus said, it will turn to you for a testimony, give you the opportunity to testify. So the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, who you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be the prince and a savior and to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. This is what God has done. We're witnesses of it. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God hath given to those that obey him. So we are bearing witness through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, it, with the miracles that are being done, the healings, all of these are the Holy Spirit's witness that Jesus is alive, that God raised him from the dead. Now, remember, they didn't believe in resurrection. So when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and they took counsel to kill him. They, they actually decided, well, these guys have got to go. Then there stood one up in the council who was a Pharisee. His name was Gamaliel, a doctor of the law. He was uh, a noted 
Hebrew rabbi, famous. Paul, as a part of his credits, declared that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. In his schooling there in Jerusalem, uh, Paul was a student of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel said unto them, You men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do as far as these men are concerned. They were talking about killing them. For before these days there rose up Thutis, Theutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves. But after he was slain, all and as many as obeyed him were scattered, and it came to nothing. And after that man, another Judas of Galilee, in the days of the taxing, he drew away many people after him. And he also perished, and all even as many as obeyed him were dispersed. Now I say unto you, refrain from these men. Let them alone. For if this counsel or this work is of men, it will fall apart. It will come to nothing. But if it's of God, you can't overthrow it. Because you'll find yourself fighting. You'll be in that hapless state of fighting against God. Now, in spite of this, Saul, who was there in the council because he was one of the voting members of the Sanhedrin, hearing his professor give this sagacious advice, still determined to stamp out the church and to fight against the church, persecuting those that called on the name of Jesus, forcing them to blaspheme, and yet fighting against God. When the Lord finally stopped him on the road to Damascus, he said, it's been hard for you to kick against the goats. So they all agreed to the saying of Gamaliel. It made sense. And so when they called the apostles back in, you see, they set them aside. Gamaliel said, get them out of here. I want to talk to you. He, so when they brought them back in, they beat them and commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Isn't that something? They rejoiced. Now, if, if you were beaten because you were witnessing for Jesus Christ, what would you do? You'd probably go, to, well, that's the end of that, man. I'll never do that again. <laughs> but they were rejoicing. Oh, Lord, man, you counted us worthy to suffer shame for you. Lord, you're so good. How do you stop those kind of men? Well, you don't. <laughs> you can't. Threats, beatings, you can't stop these kind of men. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease to teach and to preach Jesus Christ. Unstoppable. Shall we turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 6? We have, as we've been going through Acts, pointed out how that there came a movement in the early church of the people selling their properties and bringing the money in 
so that there was sort of a common treasury, a community living. And we have seen already that certain problems have arisen from this practice. In the study last week, we saw how that Ananias and Sapphira had sold their property and made a pretense of giving everything when, in fact, they conspired to hold back a part of it for themselves. Now, their sin was not holding back. Their sin was hypocrisy, pretending to give everything when in reality they were holding back. Peter makes that very clear. They weren't required to sell the property. They weren't required to bring the money in but they were seeking to deceive the people, lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to God, uh, as they feigned giving everything when in reality they had determined to hold back part of it. Now, in chapter 6, we find another problem that arises from this practice of sharing the wealth of the church and distributing it from the church. In those days, when the number of disciples was multiplied, and I like that, uh, I like that word. Um, We read, and the Lord added to the church, but now the Lord is multiplying to the church. Uh, God's mathematics are interesting. Uh, Sometimes he subtracts. And sometimes we experience blessed subtractions. (laughs) Last week, we found the Lord subtracting Ananias and Sapphira, but the subtracting led to multiplying. And as the Lord works in building his body, it's always exciting when the Lord is multiplying to the church. But there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. That is in the daily administering of the welfare program of the church. Now the Grecians were the Hellenist and they were the Jews who were following the Grecian culture. As you know, when Alexander the Great conquered uh, the world, he left the Grecian culture throughout the world. And many people adopted the Grecian culture. Greek became almost the universal language at that time and people adopted the Grecian culture. So even among the Jews, there were many who had adopted the Grecian culture over against the Hebrew culture. And thus, there was this division among the people, those who were living according to the Grecian culture and those that were kosher, living according to the Hebrew culture. Now, They felt, some of the people, felt that because they were living according to the Grecian culture, 
They were not getting an equal share when the church was administering the welfare program. They felt that their widows were being neglected. And so they brought the issue to the apostles. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Acts in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on ministry. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Acts 5-6 through 6 when visiting thewordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we give thanks to you now for your Word Lord, teach us. Let our hearts be open. Father, we pray that you will grant to us greater faith. God, keep us from any kind of hypocrisy, pretense, trying to appear to be something we're not. Lord, we do pray that you will give us the boldness that we need to proclaim your truth. And Lord, help us that we won't be guilty of the folly of fighting against you. But when you speak to our hearts, Lord, on issues, help us to obey. Help us to surrender. These things, Father, we desire. And we ask in Jesus' name. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. This Christmas, why not give the gift of God's Word by choosing the Word for Today Bible, featuring Chuck Smith's notes highlighting a simple understanding of the Scriptures. This Bible includes an exhaustive concordance, cross-references, in-text and color maps, words of Christ in red, and Chuck Smith's commentary notes, including Hebrew and Greek word origins. And in the Word for Today Bible softcover edition, we've included Chuck Smith's book, How Can a Man Be Born Again?, which is very informative for a new believer. It's our prayer that as your loved ones read the Word for Today Bible, 
Chuck's commentaries will give a simple understanding into the scriptures, causing God's word to come to life in their heart, not only drawing them into a closer relationship with the Lord, but stirring them to passionately serve God. For more information, please call The Word for Today at 800-272-9673 or visit us online at thewordfortoday.org to read a preview.